This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. So uh, tonight we have a special class sponsored by, in memory of Shmuel HaKohen Ben Ze'ev. Sponsored in memory of Shmuel HaKohen Ben Ze'ev. May his neshama have an aliyah, Bezrat Hashem, before Yom Kippur. And, uh, and anyone wants to sponsor a class, please be in contact with Michelle on the WhatsApp group or send me an email, whatever you want. Okay. In the Mishkan and Beit HaMikdash times, we have to really imagine Yom Kippur is a totally different festival, amazingly different festival from what we have today. And we're going to talk about that. And has that added to Judaism or taken away from Judaism? We have to discuss this. So in Mishkan and Beit HaMikdash times, Yom Kippur is a day when the holiest man in Israel, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, did Teshuvah for his own sins and then for the sins of his house and then for the sins of the Kohanim and then the sins of all Israel. So the high priest was really the person who was in charge of Yom Kippur. He was going into the Holy of Holies, which is the holiest place in the world on the holiest day of the world. And here's the holiest person in the world. All three things come together. The holiness of the person, the holiness of the day, the holiness of the place, place, time, and person come together in Yom Kippur, the holies, holies. So from the day the temple was destroyed, we have no high priest. Unfortunately, we have no high priest, no Kohen Gadol. We don't have all the rites that he performed on Yom Kippur. We don't have a Beit HaMikdash. We don't have a Holy of Holies. But we still have the day. The day is still with us. Baruch Hashem, we have the day of Yom Kippur, which we're going to talk about, the day of atonement, and the ability to confess and pray for forgiveness. That's what we have today. We have today, the day of Yom Kippur, and we have, who's the high priest today? The answer is each one of us has to be our own high priest. We don't have any high priests. We're going to see, was that an advantage or disadvantage? I, I proclaim it's an advantage. The advantage is that we cannot pass the responsibility. You can't pass the buck. You cannot pass the buck to anyone else. You can't say the high priest is atoning for me. You can't say the goat, the scapegoat is atoning for me. Today, it's all up to each individual to atone for themselves, which is amazing concept. We're going to see how much it added to Judaism, this, this concept. So we have the day and we have the ability to pray and say, which is asking for forgiveness on this holy day. It's so much easier to admit your sins, failings and mistakes when the whole community is doing it. So we have a day where we're surrounded, hopefully go to shul, go to synagogue, and over there the whole community is doing teshuva. It's like a different a feeling than just one person doing teshuva by themselves. Here you have surrounded by like-minded people doing teshuva altogether. It's a community situation where the community is doing teshuva. No one stands out. No one feels embarrassed. And we don't admit to anyone except to God. We don't confess to anyone. Judaism is a relationship with God direct. We don't have any third parties. We don't go through the priest or the rabbis. We go directly to the boss. We go directly to the source of our lives, our welfare, our health, and our wealth, whatever we have. We go straight to the source and say, Hashem, I'm sorry. Hashem, I made mistakes. Hashem, I'll try and improve. Whether one does, one doesn't, it's the intent. Hashem goes by a person's intent. If one is truly meaning it on the day of Yom Kippur, Hashem accepts it. If you truly mean it at that specific time, when you're talking to God, Hashem accepts the tissue, Hashem accepts this concept that a person regrets and it will change. 
where do we know this concept that person is accepted at that specific time? And the answer is we learn it from a very unusual source. We learn it from Ishmael. Ishmael was the son of Abraham, Abino, Abraham. He was the son of Hagar and Abraham. And it says Abraham threw him out. He threw out his own son because he saw he was going the wrong path. Ishmael was, uh, imagine, the oldest son of Abraham Avinu, and he was going in the wrong path. And Hashem tells Abraham, throw him out. Throw this boy out. He's not going to inherit you. So he throws him out, and the boy doesn't say how much. He was a teenager. And he's in the desert with his mother, and he got sick. He got sun, sunstroke or something, and he got sick. And the rabbis say he was having conversation with God. He was repenting. And it says God accepted his repentance by Shehusham. God heard his cries by Shehusham because at that particular moment he was doing Teshuvah. And God said, at this time you're at Teshuvah, you're, right now you're at Sadiq. I'm going to accept your prayers. Hashem goes by that moment where a person hooks into Hashem and prays to Hashem and admits to Hashem. Hashem says, I go by this moment. You are righteous right now. I'm going to grant your wishes. I'm going to give you a good year. I'm going to give you health and strength and give you another chance. So that's what we have to do. We have to get to that point on Yom Kippur where we come to that point and really we mean it. We're sorry. We admit. We regret. And we won't do it again. And we'll improve. And Hashem says, okay, just like I accepted Ishmael's prayers, I'm going to accept your prayers as well. So it's much easier when other people are doing However, a person should be quiet. They, sh- they shouldn't pray loudly. They shouldn't scream, I sin. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's a private, even though it's in public, it's a private affair. What you say to God, you whisper. Don't say it any loud. So it's got to be a silent whisper. You're whispering to God. The vidui should be said by each person silently. It shouldn't be said aloud. And a person can add whatever they want. If they're doing their mission, they can add whatever things they did. But say it in a whisper, not a loud whisper. You don't want anyone to hear it. So interesting. So if other people can admit this, we can also admit this. So that's why it's better to do it in public, in a public forum. We see you're encouraged by people around you. And that's a very important idea, this idea that to be encouraged by other people. It's, uh, it helps the whole process if there's an atmosphere. The atmosphere in the shul is very important. And one of the things we lost today is one of the strangest elements of the Yom Kippur service in the time of the temple, which is set out in Parashat Acharimot, in Leviticus chapter 16, in Vayikra chapter 16, verse 7 to 22. And that is the ritual of the two goats. Very strange ritual. One of the strangest rituals, I think, in the whole Torah is the ritual of two goats of Yom Kippur. And these two goats, the rabbis tell us in the Mishnah and Yoma, it says these two goats have to be the same heights, the same looks, uh, they have to look alike. They have to look barely like twins, nearly. And the same age. And one goat is a lottery. The Koigado puts his hands inside his lottery and he pulls out two pieces of, uh, and eventually became gold, and on which were engraved La Shem Belazazel. One goat was for God as a sacrifice to God in the temple. The other goat was Lazazel. Lazazel, literally today, you know, Israelis want to curse at you, they swear it. Go to Azazel, just like the goat. Go to this place, Azazel. So he sent to the desert to Azazel. And they were, to all intents and purposes, indistinguishable from another one. So there's a lot of different symbolisms over here that there's, a person got to imagine, there's two kinds of people, and they both look alike. They're twins. 
For example, Esav and Yaakov didn't really look alike, they were twins. And Esav ends up on one path, and Yaakov ends up on one path. There's two paths in life. There's the path which is to God, and there's a path leading to Azazel, which we have to talk about. So two goats, they represent two parts of us. And these two parts of us in battle continuously. One part of us is headed the good inclination is pushing us to do good, to serve Hashem, to serve God. And the other one is pushing us to a life of uh, wandering in the desert, a life where it doesn't lead to anywhere, just leads to no good and barrenness and no reward. That is uh, the symbolism of the two goats, a beautiful symbol of the two goats. And they are brought before the high priest, as mentioned, the lots were drawn, one bearing to God and one bearing Azazel. Now, the truth is with us, it's different. No one's pulling the lots. We have to decide for ourselves. Okay. We have to decide for ourselves um, what we're going to do with our lives. Are we going to do it in the path of God? Are we going to uh, throw our lives away? So very, very important, this idea. Um, and much is puzzling about this ritual. What does it mean to us? That's the question. Where was this goat saying? What was Azazel? It doesn't appear anywhere else in the whole Tanakh. So three major theories emerge. Number one, according to the Rashi, it means a steep, rocky, and hard place. It was it would throw it off a cliff, symbolizing that this goat would be thrown off a cliff and take with it all the sins of Israel, all the sins of the Jews. And, and the symbolism was they would tie a red thread on its horns. And half of the thread was on its horns, half the other thread was hanging in the temple. And when the goat was thrown off the cliff, they would see that the red thread would turn white. Amazing. The red thread in the temple would turn white. That's, that's really amazing. They saw their sins being forgiven. This ceremony would forgive a person for all his sins. It was a description, so it's a description of his destination. That's what I actually said. This, the destination of this goat is a rocky, hard cliff, and the goat would fall down the cliff, throw it off the cliff, and that would symbolize all the person's sins, all the sins of Am Yisrael, which were loaded onto the goats, supernaturally loaded onto this goat would be disappear and the, the, the red thread would turn right. So we don't have that symbolism today. We don't see a red thread turning white. We don't see God accepting our prayers. We don't see that all the sins are forgiven. And in those days, they could actually see it. Either the sins were forgiven, the thread would turn white. This is later on in the last days of the Second Temple, a thousand years ago, the, the thread stopped turning white. It stayed red. Uh, not a good sign, and we, that's eventually led to the downfall. So it's beautiful idea, this idea that, you know, a person's sins are cleared away. We see our sins. We see the sins of Am Yisrael as a, as a nation cleared away with the ceremony. Um, and there's other, there's other reasons as well, but uh, I'm not going to go into it today. Okay. So uh, the third reason, which is uh, the simplest reason, Azazel, which Az-Ez is a goat. Uh, Azla, it means to go away. The goat goes away. The goat takes with it all the sins of Am Yisrael. Beautiful idea. We're cleansing ourselves. Yom Kippur is a dead cleansing. And uh, the most compelling answer given for this ritual by is by Rambam. In Morena Bukhim, the guide for the perplexed Rambam says, there is no doubt that sins cannot be carried away like a burden. Sins are not physical. Sins are spiritual. And we're going to talk. There are some kinds of physical sins. Um, where a person robs, say, the money is in his property, so he has the sin, the evidence of the sin is physical. 
but mostly sins of man and God. We're going to talk about different kinds of sins, man and God, man and man. And so these sins are spiritual. They can't be just carried like a burden and taken off the shoulder of one person and being laid on another. But these ceremonies are of a symbolic character, almost says. Symbolical character to serve to impress people with a certain idea and to induce them to repent, as if to say, we have freed ourselves with our previous deeds. We have cast them behind our backs and removed them for as far away as possible. In other words, there's hope for us. This symbolism of tells us, don't give up hope. There's hope for everyone. You can get rid of your sins. Hashem can forgive all your sins. You can throw them away in the desert and you can start afresh. And that's one of the beautiful ideas that God gave us in the Torah because we learned this from Adam. Right at the beginning of the Bible, where Adam and Eve, they don't listen to God's instruction, whatever they ate the fruit, whatever it was. And uh, the next day, they hear God in the, in the garden. Actually, it was the same day. It was a Friday. The world was created on a Sunday. First day of Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Man was created on a Friday. And the same day, they sin. They're in the Garden of Eden. They get thrown out just before Shabbat. Terrible, terrible. Uh, we have no idea what that means, the Garden of Eden. We have no concept. It's not a place like uh, this, this world. It's not in this world. It's a very spiritual concept. And they get thrown out. Why they sin? So they hear God's voice in the garden. And they realize they're naked. Now, I don't know what gave them this idea they were naked. What does that mean? They're naked. Rashi says one of the concepts is they were naked from the only mitzvah they had. They had one mitzvah and now they're naked. They don't have anything to defend themselves with. And God asks Adam, he says, Ayeka, where are you, Adam? What are you doing with all the gifts I gave you? What do you do with your life, with your time, with your new wife? What are you doing, Adam? And Adam is the first man created. And what does he do? He passes the buck. Instead of taking, admitting straight away, he rationalizes. It wasn't me. It was this woman you gave me. It's you, God. You gave me this woman. And God says to Hava, to Eve, what happened, Hava? And Hava says, it was the snake. It wasn't me. It was, everyone blames each other. They rationalize. So it's interesting because Everyone likes to, to rationalize. We're all in, made in the image of Adam, and we rationalize. We have that power of rationalization, and what we have to do on Yom Kippur is throw it off the cliff. Throw this, this strange animal off the cliff, represented by this goat, the power of rationalization, and our previous sins based on rationalization have to be thrown off the cliff. And we have to be like King David. Um, our role model should be like King David, when Nathan Hanavi, Nathan the prophet, came to King David and says, you have sinned with Bathsheba, and Hashem is very unhappy with you. And what does King David say? Chatati Hashem, I have sinned to God. Straight away, King David, no excuses. He says, I have sinned to God. That's what we have to do, and that's what we have to do in Yom Kippur. But there's two distinct processes involved in Yom Kippur. And this is something which is very, very interesting. First, there's Kapara, and then there is Tahara. And we're going to say this a pasuk, which we repeat over and over again on uh, Yom Kippur. Kiba Yom on this day, Yichaper Alechem, Hashem will atone for you. Yitaheretchem, to purify you. So there's two things, two processes going on in Yom Kippur. One is purification, and one is atonement. What's the difference between atonement and purification? We're going to discuss. So first is Kapara atonement, which is Yom Kippur. Kippur is Kapara atonement. Now, what does it mean, literally, Kapara 
we find this word used in the context of Noah building the ark. And he coated the ark with kofir. Kofir is coating something. Kapara is coating one's sin. It's a kind of temporary, it's not, it's not removing the sin completely. The stain is, is still there, but it's coated. It's, it's, it's got a coating of paint over it. It's like a coating of paint. That's Kapara. Yom Kippur prevents the uh, disasters coming to a person. It, it stops it. It coats the sin. The sin is not legible now. So that's Kapara, that's atonement. Number two, there's Tahara. Tahara is removal completely of the sin. So two words, distinct words are used in connection with Yom Kippur, Kapara and Tahara. Purification, which is something normally done in a different context. Purification usually done, of course, goes to the mikvah, they purify themselves for ritual defilement. But over here, we're not talking about ritual defilement, over here, we're talking about sins. So there's two processes, spiritual processes done, totally spiritual, nothing physical to be done today, we don't have a temple, nothing physical is done. It's purely through our prayers and through our teshuvah. And two things we're doing through our prayers and teshuvah. Number one is we want kapara, we want physical atonement, and number two is we want tahara, we want purity. We want to bring back the purity we had before we sinned. We want to bring back this ritual purity which we have. That's why the Minhag Israel is the only place the Shukana talks about a man going to a mikvah. Normally women have that right to go to a mikvah. The only time the Shukana says for a man to go to a mikvah is on Arab Yom Kippur. He says a Minhag, we don't make a bracha, it's only a Minhag, it's a good custom. Men go to the mikvah in Arab Yom Kippur to show getting purity because the whole point of Yom Kippur is two things. Kapara and Tahara. Atonement and purity. And You know, when you see a little child's face, you see purity. That's what you see. You see innocence. That's purity. To be innocent after a sin is very hard because once you've done that sin, you're not pure anymore. You have that stain. That stain. So the Kapara is covers the stain. And the Tara is purifies the stain completely. A person is like an innocent baby. And the truth is that if you're really spiritually inclined, you will feel that after going through Yom Kippur. At the end of Yom Kippur, a person feels purity. We feel like a load is lifted off our chest. I don't know about you, I feel it. And I'm sure a lot of you do feel it as well. And if you don't feel it, try and feel it this year. Try and be absorbed by the prayers. Don't look at your watch all the time. That's a trick. Don't look at your watch all the time. Uh, it's better to leave your watch at home. <laughs> There's usually a clock in the synagogue. Don't look at the clock. Don't look at the watch. Just immerse yourself in the experience of a mikvah. It's a spiritual time mikvah. You're going through the day. The day itself is a mikvah. And God himself is our mikvah. That's what King Abba says. Mikvah Yisrael Hashem. The mikvah of Israel is God. When you connect with God and you absorb yourself with God, God is purifying you. So that's the day where we totally devote ourselves to God. Not only we devote ourselves to God, we become a kind of angel, which we're going to talk about. All the five different things we don't do in Yom Kippur take us away from the spiritual world. In Yom Kippur, we're immersed in spirituality. We don't do these five things, which are basic human necessities, eating and drinking and and, uh, washing and uh, uh, rubbing oneself, marital relations. All these are basic human functions. We stay away from on Yom Kippur. Why? We want to get as spiritual as possible. We're going to try and get as angelic as possible. And after Yom Kippur, a person should feel a bit of angelic. We're going to see. We're going to talk about that. Okay. So there's two things. There's atonement and there's purity. 
something normally done in different contexts, completely in terms of ritual defilement, which I don't want to talk about. But what is purity over here in the case of Teshuva and why they brought together Yom Kippur, as we discussed, the distinction between two different kinds of culture. Now, this is a very interesting, important point, uh, the distinction between two different kinds of culture. There's a shame culture and there's a guilt culture. So shame is a social phenomenon. When a person does something wrong, everyone knows about it. It's disgrace. It's shame. There are a lot of shame cultures. The only way to, to stop the shame was to commit suicide. It's a terrible thing. A person who was embarrassed, shamed, was given a sword or poison, and they were told, go ahead, just take it, or jump off the cliff or something. That's shame cultures. Shame is the feeling of being found out. That's what Adam and Eve felt in the Garden of Eden when Hashem appears to them. They felt shame, terrible shame. They were ashamed of their nakedness, which means they weren't protected by a mitzvah anymore. They hid. Guilt is a personal phenomenon. It has nothing to do with what others will say. If they knew what we have done, that's shame. Guilt is a voice of conscience. It is inescapable. Well, unless you killed your conscience. A person kills their conscience, that is called, in Hebrew, karet. They've cut off their soul. Imagine, a person cutting off their soul. How does a person cut off their soul? By cutting off that voice of the conscience. Because the conscience comes from the soul. A person cuts off the voice of the conscience, they're their soul is cut off. That's karet. That's what the rabbis are in Torah. The Torah refers to karet, a spiritual cutting off. The soul is cut off. So there's two things. There's shame and then guilt. Shame involves other people. Guilt involves oneself. That's one's conscience talking to them. And conscience talking to oneself should be inescapable. And you can't, you may be avoid, avoid the shame by hiding and it'll be found out, but you cannot avoid the guilt. Although a lot of people today don't feel guilt. They've killed their guilt it's a famous story. I can say this every, every Yom Kippur. There's a guy who went to the bar and he ordered six drinks and the bartender was so happy. Oh, good customer. He drinks one, he spills number two on the floor. He drinks number three, spills number four on the floor. He drinks number five, and spills number six on the floor. The bartender says, my friend, you got a problem. You better go and get some therapy and counseling. You're a good customer. I hate to lose you, but come back when you're cured. And the guy goes away, comes back in six months' time. And the bartender says, well, sir, are you cured? He says, yes, I'm ordering six drinks. He gets the six drinks, drinks the first one, throws the second one on the floor, drinks the third one, drinks the, throws the fourth one on the floor, drinks the fifth one and throws the sixth one on the floor. And the bartender said, I thought you said you're cured. And he says, yes, I got six months of therapy. I don't feel bad about it anymore. And that is the cure of today's day and age. The cure of today's day and age is silencing the voice of one's conscience. You see people engage in terrible acts and they don't feel sorry. They don't feel any guilt. Why? Because they've killed the voice of their conscience. I don't know how people do it, but just kill without feeling any shame or embarrassment or even guilt. Because why? They kill their souls. Basically, they don't feel the voice of their conscience. So guilt is self-knowledge. There's another difference which is once understood. Explains why Judaism is overwhelming a guilt rather than a shame culture. Shame attaches to the person. Guilt attaches to the act. Shame is you're a bad guy. You're a bad person. Everyone knows that. Guilt is you're a good person, but you did something bad. It's what I did that's bad. I'm not bad. That's a very, very profound idea that we should always teach our children. I don't hate you. I hate what you did. 
I love you, but I hate what you did. If you change what you did, I can love what you did and you as well. So it's impossible to remove shame once a person has been publicly disgraced. It's like an indelible stain on one's skin. But today, even there's no shame. Unfortunately, a lot of people have no shame. People did the worst things. And uh, society loves them. They're moral. Society loves them. And no problem. They vote for them. They become president of the United States. No problem. But it should be a terrible thing. Shame. Shame. People should think bad about them. It's a mark of Cain. They can't get rid of In shame cultures, wrongdoers tend either to go into hiding, into exile, or commit suicide. Guilt makes a clear distinction between the act of wrongdoing and the person of the wrongdoing. The act was wrong, but the agent remains in principle intact. So guilt can be removed, atoned for, by confession, by remorse, by restitution. Don't hate the sinner, but hate the sin. I don't hate the sinner. I hate the sin. That's that's something we should hate. Hate is a kind of sin, the action. So normally, sin and guilt offerings are about guilt. They atone. Yom Kippur deals oh, not only with our sins as individuals, he also confronts our sins as a community bound by mutual responsibility. If there are homeless people sleeping on the streets, it's a failure of the community. It's a failure of the system. All of us, it's not just the government, it's not just the social welfare, it's us. Every individual is responsible. It deals, in other words, with the social as well as the personal dimension of wrongdoing. Yom Kippur is about shame as well as guilt. Hence, there has to be a purification at Tahara, the removal of the stain as well as atonement. So we need both. We can discharge guilt by achieving forgiveness. Forgiveness can only be granted by the object of our wrongdoing, which implies that if it's a sin between man and man, God cannot forgive it. God does not forgive sins between man and man. We have to go to the person. This is one of the things we have to do Arab Yom Kippur is go to the person who went wrong. It's so hard to do. Then the best thing to do is don't tell them what you did because they may not forgive you. So <laughs> just say, please, I'm sorry if I ever hurt you. Don't try not to go into details because, you know, it gets very tricky afterwards. If you tell them what you did and they don't want to forgive you, the guy will say, I'll never forgive you. I'll never forgive you. So it's very important to go to the person and say, I'm sorry. Please forgive me for whatever I did to you. And they'll say, I don't think you did anything to me. Okay, good. Keep it that way. But forgive me, if I ever did anything to you, please forgive me. That is one of the jobs we have to do on Arabic before. Ask everyone around us, if you wronged anyone, now's the time to forgive them. It's a very strange halakha, even if someone is dead. You wronged them when they were alive, you have to take a minyan with you to their grave and say, I've sinned to the God of Israel and to so-and-so and so-and-so who is lying over here. So it's interesting. Then the forgiveness has to go through God because the only way you can communicate with a dead person is going through God. So it's interesting. Anyway, so there's two kinds. There's guilt and there's uh, shame. And uh, we try and do both on your people. We do the purity and purification process and the atonement process. So the atonement process against the guilt and the purity is from the shame. So we get purity and atonement. So shame cannot be forgiven by forgiveness. Shame can be forgiven only through purity. Judaism is religion of hope. It's great rituals of repentance and atonement are part of that hope. We are not condemned to live endlessly with the mistakes and errors of the past. This is such a great idea. Today you find Baltishuvas, and they're like the worst people in the world. They were murderers and, and whatever. They, they, they were in jails, and now they did teshuva. And you know where they find? They go to Oman. They go to Ramachman, who is the great rabbi for Baltishuva. <laughs> so they go there. So anyway, it's interesting how you find these characters and they did teshuva. It's such a great thing. You can open a new beginning. You can open a new account. It's, it's such a brilliant idea. Thank God for this idea. It gives us all hope. 
So we Jews live in hope. Hatikva, we live in hope. Why? We can deal with the past. We can turn the page. We can ask forgiveness. We're not guilty all our lives. We're not guilty. We can get rid of the guilt. This is the great difference between a guilt culture and a shame culture. Judaism also acknowledges the existence of shame. Hence the scapegoat that could turn, take away all the shame. The defilement that is mark of the shame. And today we do it through this purity that comes to us. Okay, so it's interesting. So the effect of Yom Kippur is that it extends these concepts into the rest of the year. This idea of Vidui, which uh, Sfardim and uh, Nusach Sfard adopted, extends right through the year. Nashkanam don't have uh, Vidui all through the year, only on the high holidays, but Sfardim we do Sfardim and because of the Arizal and Nusach Sfard, Hasidim and Sfardim do Vidui every single day, twice a day. Shacharit and Mincha usually, unless there's a happy occasion. So this is, uh, this is the effects of Yom Kippur, that every day we do Teshuvah, every single day of our lives, we are banging our chest, asking God, forgiveness, I did this, I did this, I did this. And, and then we get a little bit of purity every single day. So even though I did something today, I'm getting purity today. The, the Gemara says, don't suspect a wise person of being a sinner. Why? Because even if you saw him sin, maybe he did Teshuvah that same day. He probably did. Before he went to sleep, there's another Vidui. So three times a day we say Vidui. And it's like a miniature Yom Kippur. Every single day is like a miniature Yom Kippur. Some people have a miniature Yom Kippur the day before Rosh Chodesh. Every Rosh Chodesh, they fast. They, and they have special prayers. So again, we have miniature Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur has a tremendous effect on Jewish life. It gives us the ability to start anew, afresh, every single day of the year, every single day. So that gives us hope. That's a religion of hope. It gets rid of the mark of shame purity and it gets rid of the sin and the guilt through atonement and Baruch Hashem we have this on Yom Kippur we say two lists we say the Vidu which is a list it's an Aleph Bet people don't realize it's an Aleph Bet form where it's, our sins go right through the Aleph Bet we say all the sins Hashamu Baganu Gazalu Aleph Bet Gimel it goes right through the whole alphabet and then the Alchet sin for this sin and that sin also it's go go through it. Some sitter has in big letters the Aleph and the Bet. You'll see the Aleph Bet Gimel. From A to C, we sin everything you can think of. From A to Z, everything is there in the Vidui, even though you didn't do it. It's a confession in the plural. It's we're, we're not just asking forgiveness for ourselves. This confession is in the plural. Why? Because we're confessing for every single Jew around us, for society, for the whole society. Because we're all in the same boat. All the Jews, every single Jew is called Israel, Arabim we are responsible for everyone else. And there's no such thing as I'm just standing by myself. No Jew stands by themselves, they stand united. We are united. And I saw a beautiful idea, you can only do this in English. It depends where the I of united is. If the I is U N I T, it's united. If the I is untied, U N T I, it's untied. Where is I, the I? Where is the ego of the person? Is my ego first? In which case, I'm not part of the Jewish people. It's me, 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 me. Or is my ego embedded with others? Am I part of the society? That's So a Sadiq has to be part of the society. We find with Adam uh, with Abraham Avinu, when he prays for Saddam. And he's praying with God. There's 50 people in the midst of the city. There's 45, there's 40. And he gets down to 10. But the key word of there is in the midst of the city. What does that mean? The midst, the righteous have to be in the midst of the city, which means they're going to be part of the fabric of the community. They can't just live in a cave somewhere else and uh, say, you know what, I can atone for other people, I can't. 
have to be part of the society. Unfortunately, we have to be part of the society. And society rubs off on us, and we rub off on others. And that's part of the process of being part of a society. So when the whole society confesses guilt, individuals can be redeemed from shame. We're all sinners, all of us. So what's the difference? We're all saying, we're all in the same boat. We're all saying, we're all beating our chests. No one can come along and say, I didn't sin. You know, it's a beautiful story. They say this about the Rambam. I don't know how true the story is, but it's a true story. Which means, even if it didn't happen, the, the idea is true. And that is that there's a man, the shul, and the Rambam shul. That's what they say. It's a legend. They said, there's a man, the Rambam shul. And every time they got to the Bidui, the man runs away. And the Rambam is, what's going on up here? Not just once, twice, three, four, five. Every time there's a video, he's saying, everyone's confessing in this, banging their chest, and this guy runs away. So he calls him in, says, tell me, he says, why do you run away if there's times a video? video? So the man says, Ramban, today's the holiest day of the year. The ark is open, and I'm not going to tell lies. I didn't do these things. <laughs> I just didn't do these things. I didn't steal. I didn't commit adultery. Why do I have to say that I did these things? So Ramban says, my friend, number one is these things in the plural. And therefore, you're not just saying for yourself, you're saying for others as well. Number two is, even if you didn't actually do these things, maybe you did in your thoughts. Maybe there's something similar which has some kind of relationship to these things. I may, I may have stolen someone's sleep. Maybe someone was sleeping and I made a loud noise. I didn't steal really, I didn't steal anything physical, but I stole his sleep. Maybe I didn't give enough, a person enough honor. Maybe I stole their honor. So there's different kinds of ways of doing these things without actually doing them. So... So that's why we have to say the Bidu, even though we think we didn't say it. The Benish Chai says we're saying this Bidu not just for ourselves, we're saying it for our previous reincarnations. Oh boy, that's a very big Kabbalistic idea. Just thought I'd throw it in, add some spice. Okay. So Judaism is a relation of hope. We have hope. We can change. We, we grow. We can throw our past away. We can pray to God and God will forgive us. Baruch Hashem, we have a forgiving God. That's one of the things we love from Adam Rishon. Adam, Adam did Tshuva. Says he went, he did 130 years of teshuva, and uh, Hashem gave him a thousand years of life. Even though Hashem says, You do this, you're going to die. He didn't die immediately, he died after a thousand years. Wow, I wish no one could say, I wish I could live to a thousand years. Uh, but he didn't live a thousand years, he lived 930 years. Oh, that's a different story. Talk about it some other time. Okay, so Judaism helps us admit our mistakes in three ways. Number one, First is the knowledge that Hashem forgives. That's great. God forgives us. That's amazing. Who else would forgive us? Like, you have to be really large. You have to be massive to forgive. Was, what do you do? Hashem says, you didn't do anything to me. You just disobeyed me. But what I'm telling you is not for my good. It's for your good. It was you hurt yourself. We hurt ourselves. You have to say this to ourselves all the time. We hurt ourselves when we do wrong actions. When we do wrong actions, we're hurting ourselves. We're hurting God. God doesn't care. He cares for us. He doesn't care what we do in a sense. It doesn't hurt him. It doesn't hurt his grand scheme of things. But we're hurting ourselves. We're hurting our souls. That's terrible. And we feel it. If a person has some kind of spiritual sensitivity, they'll feel that hurt of themselves. It's kind of spiritual suicide. So that's number one is Hashem forgives. And we acknowledge our mistakes, learn from them, confess them as all well. Number two. Second is there's a big difference between a sinner and the sin, as we say. So a person did something bad, but the person is not bad. It's what he did was bad, and we can change and do good. So there's hope for all of us. We don't lose faith in ourselves, or we don't lose faith in other people. He did something bad doesn't mean he's bad all the time. He did something bad, and we all fall. 
Number three is the aura of the Yom Kippur spreads over the rest of the year. It helps create a, an aura, society, a culture of honesty, which we're not ashamed to acknowledge the wrongs we have done. And despite that fact, technically, Yom Kippur focuses on sins between us and Hashem. However, if you read the Hashem, the Baganu, most of them deal with laws between man and man, deals with sin between man and man, al also. Most of the al deal with our dealings with other people. And the first person we know, Adam Rishon, accepted his mistake. He made a mistake, and he gets the shuva for a certain degree. <clears throat> Yehuda was really the first one explicitly to say, Tamar is more righteous than me. I'm the sinner. I'm the one who did it. And now we say that's the roots of the word Yehudi, Jew, Yehudi, Yehuda. Yehuda comes with Lehudot, which is to thank his mother Leah, thank God, for her fourth child. And uh, Yehuda, then uh, Yehuda, to, to thank, you have to admit. You can't thank someone without admitting you owe them something. They did something good for you, you have to admit. So admission, that's Yehuda. Yehuda is the one who admits. And we are called Yehudim. We are the people that admit. We admit our faults. We don't hide our faults. And we atone for our faults. We ask for forgiveness for our faults. We have the courage to admit our wrongs. Honest self-criticism is one of the unmistakable marks of greatness. Those who fully open themselves to forgiveness, Yom Kippur is a life-transforming experience. It tells us that Hashem appears in the universe of love and forgiveness, reaches out to us in love and forgiveness, asks us to love and forgive others. Hashem never asked us not to make mistakes. All he asks is that we acknowledge our mistakes, learn from them, grow from them, and make amends where we can. And that's a very high view of human possibility. Hashem created us in His image, he gave us freedom. He had tremendous freedom. We can do whatever we want. We can rebel against God. We are not tainted by original sin. We're not destined to fail. We're not caught in the grip of an evil. Only divine grace can defeat. To the contrary, we have within us the power to choose life, which we said is one of the parashat re. Parashat re, re, anuchim God says, I put before you all the choices. Choose life. Choose life. Judaism is the religion of life. God himself wants us to choose life. We are not destined to fail. He didn't create us with obsolescence. Hashem says, you have the power to choose good. You have the power for life. You have the power to choose life. Judaism constantly asks us to excite our freedom. To be a Jew is not to go with the flow, to follow the path of least resistance, to worship the conventional wisdom of the age. To, be, to the contrary, to be a Jew is to have the courage to live in a way that is not the way of everyone else. Each time we eat, drink, pray, or go to work, we are conscious of the man's our faith makes on us to live God's will, be one of his ambassadors in the world. Judaism has always been, perhaps always will be, counter-cultural. That's a very important idea. Where do you know this? Abraham Avinu. It says he was Abraham Ha'ivri. The rabbis say Ivri comes from an Eber. He was always considered from the outside. Society always considered from across the river. He was a counter-cultural person. Whatever side he thought was good, Abraham Avinu said, uh, not so great, my friends. Whatever thought, side he thought was bad, he thought, oh, that's good. So if you take the, the great example, a bad example of Saddam, whatever Saddam thought was bad, Abraham Avinu said it was good. Sadaqah, giving charity. Saddam said, don't give charity. You're defeating God's purpose in life. If God created that person poor, you want him to be poor. And Abraham Avinu says, no, if God created a person to be poor, he wants you to help that person. So totally counter-cultural, that's Judaism. In the age of collectivism, Judaism emphasized the value of the individual. In the age of individualism, Judaism built strong community. 
communities. When most humanity was consigned to ignorance, Jews were highly literate. When others were building monuments and amphitheaters, Jews were building schools. In materialistic times, they kept faith with the spiritual. In ages of poverty, they practiced tzedakah. We are going against the grain. We're we are against the grain. No religion has ever asked more from its followers. Let's think about this. No religion ever asked its followers to do 613 commandments, 248 positive commandments, and, and uh, 365 negative commandments. So hard, imagine. To be a Jew and do all these commandments is amazing that Hashem even asked us. You have 613 commandments to do, 248 things to do, 365 things not to do, which apply to every aspect of our being, from the highest aspirations, the most prosaic details of life, our library of sacred texts, Tanakh, Mishnah, Gemara, Midrash, codes, commentary, so vast, a whole lifetime is not enough. As Rabbi Eliezer Gadol, the great Rabbi Eliezer, one of the rabbis of Rabbi Akiva, says, I lapped, I learned a lot from my, my, my teachers. Whatever I learned is like a dog can lap from the sea. How much water can a dog lap from the sea? That's what I learned. So I spent my lifetime learning, and that's what I got was a little amount. And yet, he knew more than anyone else alive. And when he died, we lost thousands of halachot. We lost thousands of the laws. So it's very hard. We have so much Torah to learn. Hashem said, learn the Torah. You'll teach your children. Again, you can't teach if you don't know. And the Torah is vast. And there's a lot of obligations for Jews. Mitzvot, learning Torah. And believe me, if you do all that, you're going to be busy all day long. <laughs> you won't have much time to do anything else. Okay, so that's a very important idea. It takes a lifetime to master the Torah, and it's not enough. Lifetime is not enough. Someone, one rabbi told me it takes 900 years. But, you know, I don't know how he knows them. Then he came back the next day, he says, no, it only takes 700 years. So maybe each person is different. And uh, one of the students of um, Aristotle sought for a description to, to, to tell his fellow uh, Greek, Greek uh, nation how to define a Jew. And he calls them a nation of philosophers. We are a nation of philosophers. You read the Torah and you're, you're learned in the Torah that you're a philosopher. You have to be a, a lawyer, you have to be a philosopher, you have to be a doctor, because it had, contains all these topics. So high that Judaism set the bar, it's inevitable we should fall sometimes. It's inevitable. Which means Hashem wrote forgiveness into the script. There has to be forgiveness. And that's why, even though the Torah starts off with the word Elohim, God Elohim is the word used. Um, so uh, the word used is Elohim, the God of justice, 32 times in a row, and then all of a sudden it's Hashem Elohim, it's the God of mercy. You have that mercy. It's built into the system. Hashem had to build the system. He says, impossible. You need the mercy in the system, otherwise man cannot survive. So interesting. So there's justice and mercy, and there's room for us. We, we fall and we climb. You know, I love that game. Uh, it defines life. Shoots and ladders, shoots and ladders, or snakes and ladders, the British call it snakes and ladders. A person climbs the ladder of life, and there's a shoot right there, and it goes down. But a sadiq will keep climbing, he go down once, he go up again. That's the reason a sadiq and a rasha, a rasha just says, I can't make it. I'm going to go down and go down and go down. I can't climb all the time. And sadiq says, I'm going to, even though I go down, I'm going to keep climbing. I'm going to try my best. And a person is rewarded for their energy and efforts. God does not reward in terms of how much you did. 
He rewards in terms of how much effort did you put into it. So a person who fails and climbs again, putting tremendous effort, and that's Hashem rewards effort. Hashem loves effort. Boy, that's amazing. Okay, so let's uh, continue a little bit because we're coming to the ending. Uh, so more than Yom Kippur expresses our faith in Hashem, it's an expression of Hashem's faith in us. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, is the holy of holies of Jewish time. It's the rarest of phenomena. <laughs> Think about this. A Jewish festival with no food. <laughs> That's unheard of. How can you have a Jewish festival with no food? Every Jewish festival has food. Yom Kippur is a day of festival with no food. Instead, it's a day of fasting, a day of prayer, introspection, and self-judgment. Collectively and repeatedly, we confess our sins and pray to be written into Hashem's book of life. And there are two books of life. We say, We say, Remember us and write us. So Rav Chaim Vital, this great, famous uh, student of Rizal, says, Remember us is spiritual. Hashem, remember us, give us spiritual life. We want immortality, that spiritual life. Spiritual life is immortality, but we also need physical life in this world. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to achieve the spiritual life by doing good deeds. So we need the physical and the spiritual. So remember, it's physical life. So is spiritual life. We're asking for both spiritual life and physical life. Hashem will be answered, and Hashem will seal us. We end off on Neila, as the greeting is Khatima Tova. Maybe all have great sealings. Hashem should seal us in life. Everything. Anyway, so let's just continue a little bit and talk about Erev Yom Kippur. What, you, what does a person do Erev Yom Kippur? But someone asked me just now a question, and that is, how do you balance? How does a Jew find balance in life? It's such a hard question, but the answer is very simple. There's a, a little halakha in the Shulchan Aruch, which not many people know. How do you make your whole life into one big mitzvah? And the answer is, what is your purpose? What are you thinking when you're eating? Are you thinking, I'm going to serve God by eating so I get more strength to serve God? When you go to the supermarket and you go to the store and you say, well, why am I going to the store? I'm buying food for my family so they could do his thoughts, so they could learn to arouse him. I'm doing God's will. You are making every little mundane thing. When you go to the bathroom, you want to be healthy. So you want to be healthy to serve Hashem. You're making every mundane thing. This amazing concept that every little thing we do, we can, we can make it holy. We can, uh, we can make it holy. And uh, that's, a, that's a powerful. How, how can you live your life and to make your life into a mitzvah? Have good thoughts and say, I'm doing this for the sake of Hashem. And here in Israel, it's very easy. Why? If you're doing renovations in your house, there's a mitzvah of living in Israel. I'm making this mitzvah of living in Israel. Anything I do, I have that in the back of my mind. It's amazing. Outside Israel, I couldn't say this, but Israel, I can say everything I'm doing, I'm eating and living in Israel. And Israel is one of the places like a sukkah. Why? Because you're immersed in it. It's, there's only three mitzvot you're immersed in. One is the mikvah. The other one is the sukkah. And number three is living in Israel. You're immersed in holiness. So Baruch Hashem, we're in Israel. Every second Israel counts a mitzvah. And even I walk to work, I walk, I walk to play, I walk home, I'm walking the streets of Israel. And every six feet, you get Olam Every six feet, you're bent Olam So a person can balance their life. Even doing the most mundane things, you're doing exercise. I'm doing exercise because I want to stay healthy to Baruch Hashem. There, you made it to a mitzvah right there. Boom, it becomes a mitzvah. So everything can become a mitzvah. I just want to go a bit into Erev Yom Kippur if we have a few minutes. And what is the customs of Erev Yom Kippur? Number one is 
on Yom Kippur, we say 13 attributes of God, 13 attributes. We say it over and over again. That's the attributes of mercy Hashem gave us after the sin of the golden calf. And that's, uh, that's why we say it, because we were forgiven. The first day of Yom Kippur was the forgiveness for the sin of the golden calf. Baruch Hashem, we were forgiven. And that's the uh, prototype of all the other. Neo, can you, can you mute? That was the prototype of all the other uh, events. So Yom Kippur, the first Yom Kippur is the forgiveness for the sin of the golden calf. The second time Moshe Rabbeinu comes down the mountain with the second, second tablet says Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the forgiveness of the golden calf. And that's when Hashem taught Moshe Rabbeinu the 13 attributes. And that's the prayer we use the most in our Yom Kippur prayers. We repeat over and over again this uh, Yom Kippur, the, the 13 attributes to God. So while many of the observances of Yom Kippur such as fasting and long prayers can be difficult, there's also, we can interpret them positively as indication of closeness to Hashem. Fasting, no leather shoes, standing in prayer, even the peace that exists between Jews on that day, where no one has time to argue with each other. With the behavior of angels, on Yom Kippur, Jews become angels in heaven, purified and close to God, not limited by the physicality. And that's the five things we don't do on Yom Kippur, into our physicality. We try and avoid physicality, physical things to do in Yom Kippur. We want to be like angels. How do we know we're like angels? It's the only day of the year we can say, Baruch Shem Kevod Machuto, aloud in the Shema. Why? Because it says, Moshe Rabbeinu, he got it from the angels, and he doesn't want the angels to get jealous of us, and therefore we say it quietly. But the only day we can say it aloud is because we, we're like angels. We are like angels ourselves. They're not going to get jealous. We are like angels. The closest... A person gets spiritually to God is on Yom Kippur. Why? We're not concerned with physical. A person doesn't think about anything physical. Think only about spiritual things. Yom Kippur is a day for spiritual. One day in 365 days, which is a totally spiritual experience. So why don't we wear leather shoes? And the answer is, we want to feel uncomfortable. Torah says, you will afflict yourselves on this day. What do you mean afflict yourselves? Because if the body is afflicted, they're going to think. They start thinking. Maybe my soul is also afflicted. I want clarity in life. My body uh, is like a punishment, right? It's a, it's a kind of punishment we afflict ourselves to be able to get some clarity in life. Also, you know, Prophet Jeremiah says, we act like a homeless person on Yom Kippur. No shoes, no food, no drink. No, no. This way we can appreciate what people go through, the poor people go through, and we'll have more compassion. On Yom Kippur, we have to learn compassion for other people. So it's a beautiful idea, the idea of learning compassion on Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur is a day of closeness to Hashem, angelic, spiritual day. While the encounter with Hashem and the Torah may appear to be unrelated, in fact, they are mutually dependent. We need to approach Hashem in a state of purity. And that can only be achieved through doing teshuva, uh, with the sins of people being forgiven. And, uh, and if we have an intimate personal request, Hashem can be uh, listened to us, and give us mercy, as we said, in 13 attributes. A unique opportunity for ob- obtain closeness to God, closeness to Hashem. And Midrash compares Yom Kippur prayers to a verse from the Song of Songs. My, one of my favorite pasukim in the Torah is Shira Shirim. That describes a woman who rises from bed at night to begin an encounter with a lover. It's a very, only Shira Shirim. Song of Songs, King Solomon wrote in prose in terms of a, a mashal. It's a, it's a symbolism, a person with their lover. With each Yom Kippur prayer, it's implied Jews approach closer to God. I rose up. This is the Pasuk in Shirim, Song of Songs, chapter 5, verse 5. Look it up. 
I rose up to open to my beloved the door. I heard my no- the knocks of my beloved on the door. This refers, as Rabbi say, to the morning prayers, Yotzer. My hands dripped with myrrh. This woman had just rubbed herself with these uh, different kinds of, of creams. And I rose to open the door. That's early morning prayers. Uh, my hands dripped with myrrh. This refers to Musaf. My fingers were flowing myrrh. This refers to Mincha. Upon the handle of the door bolt. This refers to Nila. She can't open the door. Hands are full of... And, and the beloved is standing outside. Please open the door. Please open the door. The rabbi says, beautiful idea. The mashah is a parable. God is knocking on our doors all year long. Open up, my beloved, my beloved. The person says, I have excuses. Like my hands, I can't open the door. But eventually, she manages to open the door. It shouldn't be too late to open that door. That's Neila. That's the last chance we have to open the door. Because Rashi will all open the door to Hashem and have an encounter with Hashem on Yom Kippur. The Mishnah describes Yom Kippur as a wedding day, as on this day, Moshe Rabbein returns with the second tablets and uh, renews the covenant between man and God, between God and Israel. And the purpose of Yom Kippur, which we say all the time, which I, we have quoted before, it's in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 30, you look it up, Vayikra 1630, On this day, atonement shall be made for you to purify you from all your sins before Hashem, you shall be purified. The word purified is said twice. There's two forms of impurity, ritual impurity, we're touching the corpse, and moral impurity, when a person does a bad sin. The Torah says we get purity in both ways. There's two kinds of purity over here mentions. According to the Nitziv, the first mention is a promise that God will purify Israel on this day. The second is a command calling on Israel to purify. We purify and God purifies. We try and purify ourselves. We don't finish our shins. I'm going to finish the process for you. As long as you try, I'm going to finish the process. Just going through the day of Yom Kippur purifies. Not eating, not drinking, all the things we talked about. Purifies a person. And uh, Jeremiah says, as I mentioned, Israel is the mikveh. God is the mikveh of Israel. right? So we have to know with God, that's our mikveh. Hashem is purifying us. It's a day of Jewish unity. And let's just talk about Arab Yom Kippur very quickly. Uh, we have a few minutes left. According to the Talmud, Yom Kippur does not atone for sins between a person and his fellow. Until the person asks for forgiveness. So that we said, Erev Yom Kippur is one of the jobs of Erev Yom Kippur. Make mark it down the list. Number one is asking forgiveness from anyone you hurt before come back here. Number two, one must eat on Erev Yom Kippur. It's a mitzvah to eat. Now we said it's always a mitzvah to eat, except for Erev. <laughs> it's the only holiday there's no mitzvah to eat. But uh, it's a mitzvah to eat. Erev Yom Kippur to make up for what we don't eat on Yom Kippur. We've got to say a certain amount of blessings, which you're going to miss on Yom Kippur. We'll make it up on Erev Yom Kippur. mitzvah to eat. Arizal says double what you normally eat. That's hard to do as well. It's hard to be a Jew. Listen, it's hard to eat. It's hard not to eat. It's a mitzvah, this, mitzvah, that. That's why we get more effort, more reward. More effort, more reward. I'm uh, going number, to have in. Number three. Uh, Leo, number three. In general, Jewish holidays are celebrated with festive meals. Okay? Since a meal celebrating Yom Kippur cannot be had, we celebrate instead on Arab Yom Kippur. We celebrate our holiday meal on Arab Yom Kippur. Number four. One celebrates the forgiveness they're about to receive. So we, we look forward with anticipation. We're having the food to celebrate before Yom Kippur. We're celebrating our forgiveness on Yom Kippur. Number five, number four. Sorry, number five. Men go to the mikvah. It's a minhan. Men go to the mikvah on every Yom Kippur. And uh, the kaparot ritual, person either gives money or a chicken to charity, every Yom Kippur. And uh, yeah. And in the afternoon prayers, there's a bidui just in case. So we say a prayer video. There's much more to talk about. 
but I'm going to leave you. My time is up. And I wish you all successful. May we all be sealed with the book of life, physical life, spiritual life. And also, I will see you next Wednesday at 8.30 to discuss Sukkot. Some ideas maybe you'll never okay, Good night, everyone. Shabbat shalom. Easy fast. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.